Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TC Live Podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for listening. The focus of Tennis Channel Live this week has been none other than the Australian Open, taking place a few weeks later this year, and with virtually all of the media covering it from their home base. At our new Santa Monica studios, the Tennis Channel broadcast and production team have been on point for one hour every day with TC Live, covering the biggest storylines from down under and discussing a plethora of big matches on tap while also interviewing some of the brightest and biggest personalities in the sport. This week's TC Live podcast is the best of the first five days of Tennis Channel Live, so saddle up and be prepared to be entertained. We start with a word from the CEO of Tennis Australia, Craig Tiley. Paul Anacone and Steve Weissman caught up with him regarding the road to this unconventional Grand Slam, the quarantine and brief suspension of play during the Australian Open tune-up events, and the outlook the players have as the year's first major begins. Craig, thanks so much for joining us here on TC Live. We talked to you exactly one month ago. In fact, you said it was crazy, something you had never experienced before. What's the feeling like now as we're about to get underway? Well, I don't think that sentiment's changed, but because uh, a lot has happened even since we spoke last time. But uh, in, in an hour, we're going to open the gates. Uh, really excited about welcoming fans. The players are all ready to play. They've had uh, nine days since coming out of the quarantine program. We've played a lot of tennis this week with the ATP Cup and all the other matches. And, and we're now going to go into starting in, in an hour, um, the Australian Open on 16 match courts in this beautiful precinct here in the city of Melbourne. And... Uh, the fans are lining up and queuing up outside, ready to come in. Craig, we talked a couple of months ago, and you told me at that point you had about 10 contingency plans, and with about 10 contingency plans with inside of that. After everything that's gone on so far, what are you down to now? Is it just about playing, or is there a lot more that could happen? Well, you know, we're living in a world where you wake up in the morning and there's an, a new level of anxiety because you don't know what to expect. But uh, but we've got we've got we, we've lucky. We've got a magnificent team. Um, you know, about 600 strong. We've employed another 10,000 seasonal workforce, and and together we're going to deliver this event. So whatever's thrown at us, we'll find a way to manage it. We do have plans in place to manage it. It'll mostly probably be around people contracting the virus, but. Um, but this is going to be a safe precinct, it's a safe place to play. I know it's the evening there and it's uh, early morning here. And uh, we, we know that the fans of Melbourne and Australia are pretty keen to get out and watch some live sport. This is the first time this has been done since the pandemic began, you know, be able to have normal crowds um, and, uh, and have you know, players from around the world here uh, playing, playing the Grand Slam in two weeks. So we hope it's a showcase and a signal to the world that during this pandemic we can find a way to make this happen. Uh, it's, it's been so nice to see the people starting to get out to the tennis again, and we're so excited to get to watch some. Last week you had a big curveball with that one positive test. What happened, and how did you handle that to try to get it, uh, get it mitigated as quickly as possible? Well, it's, you know, when you get a call Wednesday night uh, from the health office to let you know that uh, it's like, oh, geez, 
Now, what, what else? What else is going to come? But um, but very quickly, we mobilized our team, put a plan in place. We tested over 500 players in in the space of 24 hours. Got the results back. Uh, everyone was negative, uh, so then they were all cleared, considered casual contacts. We had a few close contacts with the hotel workers, so our, some of our staff, uh, quite a few, had actually had to go in quarantine for 14 days. Uh, so we still then had to change some of our workforce processes, which we did in the space of 24 hours. We didn't play tennis that day. We shut the site, and then we were back on Thursday up and running, and we made a plan to finish those events still um, so we were, you know, we've been we've been fortunate with good weather. It's normally very hot in in uh, February, but it's been a bit cooler. So the weather's really helped us. Always a pleasure to chat with Craig Tiley, Tennis Australia CEO, the tournament director of the Australian Open. Sometimes uh, hasn't slept for 54 hours at a time to make this happen. Uh, Craig, with what happened this past week, what are the protocols moving forward for the tournament, for the players, for the staff? For all the fans, has any of that changed because of that one COVID case? It hasn't. It hasn't, Steve. We've, we've uh, you know, it's going to be a safe site. There's, there's a health scan when every fan comes in. Uh, there's three zones that they can go to and get entertained, watch some great tennis, enjoy premium hospitality, etc., have a good party. Um, and we just fans will, will will naturally physically distance. They do that well here in Australia. There's no requirement to wear masks. It's a uh, we're free of we're free of a community um, of community transmission. Um, we, there is a requirement when you indoors though to wear masks just to be extra safe. Uh, but outside of that, there's no requirement to do it, and and it's going to feel very normal for a lot of people. But it's going to be a safe place to be because of our contact tracing system, our monitoring of everyone's health. And, uh, you know, we hope we can have up to 30,000 fans a day. So we hope over the course of the two weeks we can get to 400,000 fans, uh, which will be half of what we normally get. But that in itself will be an accomplishment in, in, the, in the course of this pandemic. Uh, it's going to be great to see all the fans out there. And, and hearing most of the players on social media, it's been really positive. Um, their feedback's been really positive, appreciative of everything the government's done. What, what have you noticed from the players in general? Have you gotten one or two kind of streamlined areas that you've had to focus on, or has it been kind of sparse and all over the place? Well, it's pretty much pulled all over the place because each player has a different need. We've got all the players in the world here, and you know, and to bring in uh, over you know a thousand people, that's the thousand players, entourage, and their whole team, you know, into two weeks of quarantine. We brought them on 17 charter flights from over 130 countries around the world. So it hasn't been an easy task to do that, but but I think at the beginning they had to get used to the quarantine program. Once they did, everything settled down. And most of the players have been fantastic. There's always the one or two that are standouts, but you're always going to get that in the group. But they've all been brilliant and uh, responded really well to the testing we had on Thursday. Uh, did that with no problem. We went from the accommodation to the testing site, got it done, then went back and isolated so they got their test result. They all followed the protocols. And uh, and they've all been great, and they're all here ready to play. They're pretty anxious to play. They've been extremely appreciative and positive. I think nearly every player, especially those that I know well, have come into our office and and congratulated us and said thank you and showing great appreciation. They're paying for, playing for over $86 million in prize money, and they haven't done that for a long time. So, so I think they're just appreciative of the opportunity. Well, Craig, uh, we appreciate all of your efforts, all of your team's efforts to make this happen and wish you the best of luck for a safe Australian Open and hopefully a, a little bit of sleep for yourself as yeah, well. Let the games <laughs> begin and let you get some rest. No, thank you. Let the, everyone, get on Tennis Channel. Watch some great tennis, live tennis for the next two weeks. It's going to be fantastic. Some great matchups, great stories. Don't know where it's going to end up, but we'll have a great champions.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Last year, Sophia Kennan had a major breakthrough winning the Australian Open and used that success to take her game and her ranking to new heights. This year, however, she was bounced in the second round by Kaya Kanepi, proving just how gratifying and yet cruel this sport can be. Martina Navratilova, John Wertheim, and Steve Weissman discussed Kennan's rise to her first Grand Slam title and what the future may hold for the 22-year-old American. But full disclosure, this segment was recorded before the upset bug had bit her. It's a great analysis of Sophia Kennan, and it's here now on the TC Live podcast. Hadn't reached the quarterfinal at a major, goes off, wins Australia. Hadn't reached the quarterfinal at any WTA tour-level clay court event, gets to the final of Roland Garros. What a remarkable season for Sophia Kennan. Martina, what advice would you give to her about dealing with the new pressure of being defending champion and being the WTA player of the year? Uh, Nice problem. Uh, As Billie Jean coined the phrase, pressure is a privilege. But I think you have to learn to say no. You know, because everybody wants you when you're winning. And then if you say yes to everything, you won't be winning anymore. And then they won't be asking anymore. So you have, it's a fine balance between doing enough but not too much and make sure that tennis comes first. But I think she, she knows. She's, I think she's got, she's got a pretty good hold on that. And uh, her attitude, I love her attitude. I mean, she's just never say, never say die. And it's won her so many matches. Uh, but she's just such a great fighter, and I think she knows exactly what she needs to be doing. But now I think the players know exactly mm-hmm. also how to play her. That's where the, the, the sophomore jinx maybe comes in a little bit because the book is on her now what to, what to do exactly. So the element of surprise and underdog is gone. Yeah, it's, such a, it's been such a strange career. And mm. even during this successful phase, I mean, she got double bageled. And then she comes back and gets to the French Open final. She lost a few days ago to Garbini Muguruza, the player she lost to. She beat in the finals last year. Two and two. So you're the right. defending champion. You're coming into a major having won only four games against the players you beat last year. But I think in a weird way, that kind of this, this whole imposter idea with her, I think that kind of helps her motivation. I mean, she is wired like no other player out mm. here. Mm. And sometimes that serves her well. Sometimes you're thinking, this is a top five player, really? And it, it makes for uh, sort of fascinating viewing, and I think she's figuring it out. She handles the pressure in the majors really, mm-hmm. really well. Uh, and the other term is more like a warm-up, but still. In, in, even though she, she says, oh, I hope I do well, she's kind of under the radar. But, yeah, she's got to believe it because she's the defending champ. Believes it so much that she actually said before the tournament, I look ahead to the fourth round. Like, she looks at the draw. Oh, wow. Some players yeah. don't look at all. She knows who she could potentially play up until the fourth round, who she wants to play, who she doesn't want to play. Whenever we see Sophia Kennan, John, we see her dad, Alex Kennan, in the stands. Is this a dynamic coach-player, father-daughter that can continue to get her best tennis for the next 10 years? Great question. You always ask me the tough question. No, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, look, I mean, let's talk candidly among us. I mean, this is, uh, this is a dynamic we've seen a lot in tennis. It doesn't always work so well, and yet can't argue with the results. Yeah. We've certainly seen other players. Carolyn Mosniaki is an example who went through coaches, always stuck mm-hmm. with her dad, ended up getting number one. So I think fr- from the outside, it's a bit of a strange relationship. You'll remember in the French Open final, he left before the match was over. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it is an unconventional yeah. arrangement, but again, She's the reigning MVP of tennis, so who are we to uh, have that? This is a, it's a live photo. You know, Dad's next to her on the bike. I'm not sure 
When I was 21, I wanted daddy to go to work with me. But uh, again, can't argue with the results. So far, so good. I mean, sometimes you get, you get to a certain point because of the parents, and because of the parents, you don't go any further. That mm. doesn't seem to be the case here. At the same time, I would give one per- advice to her. Do not look ahead in the draw because it's pointless. And to the <laughs> papa, I would say do not leave the match during the match because she is trying. You know, you yeah. may not be happy with how she's playing, mm-hmm. but she is trying. So stay in your seat until the match is over, please. <laughs> one thing we know is that one loss will not derail the passionate and driven Kennan. So expect many, many more good things from her in the future. Well, up next on the TC Live podcast, it's none other than Aussie royalty as Pat Cash joins the show. The former Wimbledon champ discusses the atmosphere in Melbourne, how tennis was handled globally during the pandemic, and the ever-mounting drought of Australia players trying to win their local major. Cash, it's so great to see you. Uh, what is it like in Melbourne? You are there at the site of the tournament from quarantining, which you had to do, to practice, to actually seeing fans in the stands again. Yeah, look, it's been pretty unsettling, I think, for most players and, and coaches. Uh, certainly the quarantine was was extremely difficult for, for some of them. The players that got on the COVID planes, as we called them, there was three out of the 11 that uh, were under the hard lockdown. We were, uh, I was co- I'm coaching a Chiang Wang, who's the Chinese, China number one player. And we were lucky enough not to get locked down, but we're a team of three. So myself and her could go out for five hours um, a day, uh, which meant two hours of tennis practice. And um, the physio couldn't. She was locked in the room, literally locked in the room for, for 14 days as if she was a hard lockdown. So the rules and regulations are very, very extreme here. Everything from uh, when you hand your rackets into the stringers, they have, they have to wrap the, the grip in, uh, in, in plastic so that they can't, they're, not, they're supposed to touch it. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because you hand, you hand the rackets to them and they grab it and they're supposed to wrap it in plastic. All these really excessive rules which make no sense whatsoever. So players are kind of on edge. They're, they're not sure what's going to happen next, if the, if the rules are going to change or, or a lockdown is going to come. And, uh, but uh, we're out there. We're playing. The, the, uh, you know, the, there's some small crowd. It's not quite the same as the Australian Open used to be or was. We're used to lots of families and lots of noise. Of course, because of the delay, it's now we're in the, into school time so there's not many kids out there and no no families they're all back to school and back to regular life you're describing a a very delicate situation i'm curious not just as a former player not just as a coach but also as an australian how do you think tennis is done i mean how how have these players acquitted themselves well time will see uh time will tell but uh, you know i think it's fair to say that nobody has had a perfect preparation uh other than the aussies i suppose who have been down here so you know, a player like Ash Barty has now got uh, a you know tournament under her belt. Um, you know, they've been here for months and acclimatized uh, and had as much practice as they wanted to, to have. So, uh, you know, I suppose they've got a little bit of an advantage, but, you know, you would think that um, some of the players would have done some decent lead-up beforehand. It's just in the last you know, three weeks has been really tough for, for most players, uh, particularly the men, because they're playing, uh, you know, they got to play five sets and five hours and then trying to recover. And you just can't do that when you're being locked away for, for three weeks and, and with minimal or two hours practice at, at the most. And it's not ideal for the, for the women either, but you know, it is what it is. And uh, we're very happy to be out there playing tournaments. There's loads of tournaments uh, going on. Even during the second week of the Aussie open, there's, there's a couple of tournaments going on for the players who have lost. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's nice to see the crowds. It's nice to be out there playing. Uh, it's just been a phenomenal effort to get for the tournament to, to, 
to pull this out. I mean, it's just, just amazing considering, you know, how restrictive the government have been. You mentioned Ash Barty, obviously the top seed on the women's side, Pat. And uh, when you think about Australians, it's been more than 40 years since they've been able to win a title in their home slam. You got to the finals a couple of times. Who do you think has the best chance? And what is that pressure on an Australian playing at the Australian Open? Well, anywhere you play at home, you want to do your best. And, uh, you know, I did pretty well here. I got a couple of finals, lost in two close five sets. Uh, but some some of the players, uh, certainly Samantha Stoza, Pat Rafter, never really got to their perform their best. But you know, I think um, I think Ash has got a really good chance this year. Uh, but uh, it's it's just a very hard to know with, with the, the women. As we know, the women's tour is it's been um, anybody could sort of pull out a win if they get on a bit of a roll. So that's um, that, that it's going to be certainly very very interesting. And you know, I would not be surprised to see quite a few injuries and pullouts and various things like that as the players start accumulating all those games and sets into their, their legs uh, with uh, with less preparation than they're used to, um, particularly on the men's side. But I think it'll happen on both sides. What do you think, though, about what Steve was asking you about Aussies? Yesterday we had the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They win the Super Bowl. It's the first time a home team has won. It's not, not quite the same situation in tennis, but it's been more than 40 years. What, what is going on with Australian players playing in the Australian Open? What do you think has been the holdback there? Uh, well, I don't think anything particular. I think it's just that it's a, you know, it's a very tough competition. It's not uh, well, Australia is a small tennis nation, really. We used to be. A big one, of course, uh, with all the, all the legends of Labor and Newcomb and Rosewall, et cetera, all, that, all those sorts of, sorts of guys. But, you know, the tennis world has grown. Um, yeah, but we've been very lucky and uh, uh, proud that we've had sort of a winner almost every, uh, you know, every decade or so coming through over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and myself and then Rafter and Philippoussis and Stozer and, uh, you know, at, uh, Hewitt, of course, uh, and now Ash Barty. So we've, we've had a regular champions, but we're a very, very small tennis nation. And, uh, of course, we want to do well at home. And it's like the, the French have, have even the worst situation than us. They haven't won anything since, uh, you know, since uh, Yannick Noah did. So it's uh, sometimes it's a lot of pressure on the, on, the, on the home with all the media and everything that goes with it. It, it sometimes can come crippling. On the women's side, they've had a title since then with uh, Amelie Moresmo. And uh, certainly Yannick Noah won in 1983. Cashy, you talk about the women. How about on the men's side? Nick Kyrgios got the win yesterday. Straight sets. Alex Dimonor playing today. What are their chances? Yeah, Demons, uh, well, he, you would think he'd be the, 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 the more, more favored player. But I, he's playing Sangren, isn't he, if I remember yeah. rightly? Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes. That would be a really tough match normally. Um, but, uh, of course, tennis has been in a hard lockdown for two weeks. So that's where this, this could really make a difference. I would have been said that it was a toss of a coin, that match. But you have to give the edge to, to Dimenauer. Um, yeah, Nick, Nick, uh, you know, Nick is – it's hard to know with Nick. You know, he'll, he could he well could implode very quickly at some stage. Uh, so, you know, I, I think Demon is, has certainly played well. He's done, done well at the U.S. Open. He's got some real good results over last, last year. And, uh, you know, I'd expect him to probably get through this match uh, against, against tennis um, only because of the, the lockdown situation and then, and then move on. Well, it is always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for spending some time with us here on TC Live. Stay safe, and uh, we will see you soon. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure when Pat Cash joins the show. And speaking of Australia, 
Our next segment on the TC Live podcast revolves around the player viewed universally as most likely to break the Aussie drought, world number one Ash Barty. Barty is a Grand Slam champion, a fan favorite, and looks completely refreshed after not playing competitively for almost an entire year. Martina, John, and Steve discuss her chances to finally climb the mountain on her home soil. So, Martina, this year, once again, Ash Barty is the top seed. She's the world number one. How much pressure is on her to be the first since Chris O'Neill? I'm all huge. I mean, on the women's side, really the only person that would have had a chance to have won this tournament was Sam Stoser, who had won other majors, but couldn't do it here. Just her legs were tied up. She couldn't deal with the pressure. She wanted to do bad, so, well, so badly that she played badly. And she's embracing it. I, I feel like she plays the same way regardless of where she is. And, and the, the admiration that she, and the adoration that she gets now, she embraces it. So I think, if anything, she'll play better tennis. So if she loses, it's because she got beaten by a better player, not because she was too nervous to play well. I think that's a really good point. I think temperamentally, Ash Barty is probably better suited for this. I also wonder this year if it doesn't help the fact that they're not going to be packed houses. It's not going to be the typical Australian Open. You know, they trot out Russell Crowe and Olivia Newton-John. I mean, it's, it's a different vibe this year. I do remember Barty lost last year in the semis and brought, I, I believe it was her niece, a, a small child, to the press conference. And to me, that was a little bit of a tell that she was sort of defending herself against some of the pressure that comes with not having – not having fulfilled this. I mean, she's great in her first round. She's the number one seed. I mean, I think there's a lot going for her. It would be nice if she snapped this because every year it grows a little bit more. It's well, We saw this with Andy Murray at yeah. Wimbledon. But, you know, I think at some level we talk about you know, Texas is bigger than Australia. You know, Argentina is twice the population. Why are we picking on Australia? Pat Cash told us, you know, you host a Grand Slam and inevitably right. people are going to wonder where the local players are. Well, it's the history. Exactly. I mean, well, that, that too. Yeah. 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 Nice problem, yeah. though. Now, John brings up such a great point. I'm curious, your thoughts less fans, is that equal less pressure? Yeah, I think it'll be a little bit easier in some ways just getting through the crowd. You don't have to deal with that. At the same time, again, COVID, the rules are so different. Everything is so different. But I think they'll be happy that they'll have some crowd to play there yeah. and, mm-hmm. and have that uh, energy to feed off of without feeling the pressure and the you know 20,000 people exhaling when you hit a double fault. It's like, that's not helpful. So I think it'll be, and, and there'll be more like real true tennis fans. So I think they'll make it easier. John, on the men's side, you, you brought up Pat Rafter in, in your piece, uh, Pat Cash, Leighton Hewitt, some guys that have gotten far, gotten to the finals, haven't crossed that hump. Who do we have now? Who, who in the men's side can actually may, maybe get over that, that line? Is it, can anybody do it? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a factor with Ash Barty, too. There really isn't a counterpart. Alex Demonor is a player we all like and admire and enjoy watching him play. We have a number of wild cards. We obviously have Nick Kyrgios, but I don't think in that list right there, there is uh, there, there's a real candidate outside of Ash Barty. And you, you mentioned Sam Soser, who, I mean, she has struggled to win sets. I mean, she really struggled with the pressure. She won the U.S. Open, and then she would get to Melbourne and would have a hard time even, I mean, even getting to the week two with something that she couldn't fulfill. So uh, it clearly weighs on some players more than others. But I, I do think you look at that list, and it's pretty, pretty much Ash Barty's game right now. Not, not, not yet, I guess. I mean, Sam Stozer did win a doubles title in Australia. You had the Woodies. So they've had success in doubles. It's just singles has eluded 43 years. Incredible. It's time to break that. And Ash has a user-friendly draw. The mm-hmm. bottom half mm-hmm. is much more mm-hmm. weighted down. So she could kind of sneak into the finals, uh, semi-sneak into there. And then once you're in the finals, I think that's where the pressure's off in a way because now – here I am, right. and uh, yeah, we'll see. But I think if anybody can do it, Ash obviously would be the favorite to do it. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, if you're looking for a good show to watch during the pandemic, I highly recommend My Tennis Life, a tennis channel production now in its fifth season. That's almost syndication level, I think. The show follows two pro players as they train, travel, compete, and enjoy themselves in their downtime. TC Live was delighted to be joined by one of the stars of this season of My Tennis Life, CC Bellis. She breaks down her experiences so far on the show, her tennis plans for 2021, and much more. None other than CeCe Bellis. CeCe, great to see you. How you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Couldn't wait to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what made you decide to open up your world to everybody every week? Well, I thought it'd be really cool. I've loved watching my tennis lives in the past, so I was super excited when I got the opportunity to do it. Let's see, you got your mascara on. You're going to have it on all the time. So how much of your personal life are you going to reveal here? Are you going to show us all the scars from all your surgeries? Or what exactly are you going to tell us that we don't know? Yeah, I mean, you'll get to see a lot of my training, uh, some of my, you know, off-court things that I like to do, friends, family, things like that. I'm sure you'll see uh, some surgery stuff at some point. So because of the surgeries, you haven't been able to play that much. You're ranked 135. Now with COVID, it's so hard to find work anyway. How, how is the schedule coming along? I mean, what are your plans exactly? Yeah, it's been really tough. Uh, we've been lucky that so many tournaments have been able to play recently, but um, I'm looking to play the clay season and start there this year. Oh, fantastic. Obviously, you train in Lake Nona. Uh, your My Tennis Life counterpart, Tennis Sangren, is also at the USDA National Tennis Center down there. What other U.S. stars can we maybe have some guest appearances expect to see in your My Tennis Life? Oh, my gosh, there's a ton. We have so many um, up-and-coming female and male pros. You'll, I mean, you guys will just have to see. There's a ton. G- give us some names, Cece. <laughs> who, who are your friends down there? Uh, I mean, past my tennis life, uh, star Mackie McDonald's down there, uh, Chris Eubanks, Usue Arcanada, um, a lot of other girls come in and out weekly. And we have a lot of players that are in half the time. So it'll be really cool to see all of it. So with this tennis life, I don't know if they've told you, but the women that have been on this in the past, the history is not so good. Either they're injured Oh, they got pregnant. You've already been injured, so oh, wow. I would be careful if I were you. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've been warned. Have you been warned? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, listen, I mean, Coco Vandaway, Monica Puig, uh, they, they got injured. Mackie McDonald got injured during Lucy the season. Lucy got pregnant and retired. Retired. Yeah. Sam Groth retired. Are you going to be able to break the streak of my tennis life? I'm counting on you. I'm going to break it. I'm going to break it. I've been through all my injuries. I'm not having any more. This is it for me, and I'm going to break the the curse. (laughs) Love to hear it, Cece. Listen, you've been through so many highs and lows throughout your career. You're still, you're 21 years old. When you were 15, you had that big upset at the U.S. Open. Martina mentioned the health issues, the surgeries that you've been through. What have you learned most about yourself throughout all of these highs and lows? I mean, I think I've matured a ton over the years, especially through all the injuries. I've learned a lot of patience, as I'm sure you can imagine. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of other things off the court that I probably wouldn't have had time for. 
Um, you know, if I wasn't having those surgeries, I'm taking college classes online. I'm doing a ton of other things. So have you been watching the Australian Open? And if so, what has stood out to you? The matches are incredible so far this year. I've watched a few. I haven't watched, um, you know, too many this year, but I, I saw the Kyrgios match uh, last night and a couple others so far. It's been really cool to watch. So while you're not in Melbourne playing tennis right now, what's your training routine getting ready, as you said, to get back for the clay court season? Yeah, it's really rigorous, as I'm sure you'll see in uh, a lot of the videos that um, will be up on, on My Tennis Life. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing double sessions a day, sometimes triple sessions, working out a ton, um, a lot of rehab. You guys will meet you know, my coach and physio, who I do you know, extreme amounts of work with each day. And uh, we have a lot of fun, too. So I think that's the most important part. What do you think helps your tennis off the court the most? What kind of maybe, I don't know, yoga, Pilates, stretching, meditation, going to the movies? What do you think helps you the most to kind of round out your body and your mental health as well? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I do a ton of stretching recovery stuff uh, that's been helping my body. I've, I'm doing a ton of strengthening, you know, rehab to make sure I don't have any more problems with my arm, which is huge. And actually recently, my mom and I have been getting into some spin classes on my days off, and we've been loving that so far. Cool. All right. A soul cycle, uh, that helps everybody. Or, do you yeah. have a Peloton? Is that, <laughs> is that your deal, or are you, are you taking some soul pretty cycle? Pretty similar, yeah. Uh, pretty similar to that. Uh, what, what's yeah. the complex like there in Lake Nona? Obviously, the USDA has such a fabulous compound there, 100 courts. How has that been like to train down there? Oh my God, it's incredible. I, I feel so lucky to be able to train there. We have every resource a player could possibly need, you know, courts, obviously gym, trainers, anything you need is there. So it's super easy and a really great environment with the other players and we all really push each other and it's a lot of fun. Well, now that you're a part of my tennis life, I mean, we've got Hall of Famers here that can, that can give you some pointers as well, right, Martina? Just ask, I will answer. <laughs> I'd love it. Happy to help, uh, but um, maybe, maybe uh, would, I, would, I would recommend getting a push bike if you're on court like 99, Lake Nona, so you, know, you don't have to walk that. Maybe it's a warm-up to get there. <laughs> anyway, good luck, Cece. Yeah. It's great having you here. Hope to see you. All right? <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Again, don't miss Cece Bellis and Tennis Sangren on My Tennis Life, Season 5. The TC Live podcast rolls along with arguably the most polarizing name in the sport, Nick Kyrgios. Kyrgios captivates the sport in a way no one else can, and seems completely in his element, for better or worse, when playing at home in the Australian Open. Martina Navratilova, John Wertheim, and Steve Weissman discuss the one and only Nick Kyrgios on TC Live. Love him or hate him? Well, he does some fantastic things with his foundation off the court. Uh, Martina, the 10 months off, you know, get, getting to spend time at home. He says he is in more control, knows who he is more. Uh, should we expect a a more focused, a, a more mature Kyrgios now? It's possible. I think this forced break was, uh, was good for a lot of people. You know, as tennis players, you get, you get thrust into the adult life early on before you're really ready for it emotionally. And so the, the emotional growth comes in bits and pieces, and it's delayed, really. Uh, so I think this way gave him a chance maybe to catch up to that. And as he said, he feels grounded. You know, put down some roots and really figure out who you are. And that can only be good for his dentist. Mm -hmm. we, say, we say love him or hate him is our sort of fallback. How about love him and hate him? I mean, he does some <laughs> things that are just indisputably wrong, that are indefensible. He does other things that are indisputably correct and admirable. I mean, his fondness for his hometown is just, just one of many. I mean, in some ways, he's really been a voice of reason. Um, he does other things that you just can't condone. And I think that's just kind of 
you know, we, it, it is what it is. People are complex. People are inconsistent. And if, if you're looking for uh, one poll or the other, you're not going to get it with this guy. I don't know if he's a good bad guy or a bad good guy, <laughs> but he's both. I mean, uh, you so yeah. want to like yeah. him, and then yeah. he does some, you mm-hmm. know. And then vice versa. Stuff. And then you want to write him off as a knucklehead, and you and say, oh, no, this guy's back. really admirable. Yeah. I think it's interesting because he was going back and forth with Novak Djokovic, right? And, and Novak said he respects his tennis but doesn't respect Nick off the court, to which Nick said it should actually be the opposite. <laughs> you, you may not like what I do on the court, but off the court, I'm actually a good guy. Yeah. I, I'm helping yeah. people with my foundation. Uh, I'm, I'm giving food to people that don't have it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in Novak's mouth, but, but Rafa has spoken to this as well. I think it's, it's less about the antics than what he's done with his talent. And I think that's going to be a big question right. mark. Is, is this, hey, I'm doing it my way. I don't need a coach. I don't need to practice. I think that's what offends players more than a couple of remarks on social media. It's what he's done with that talent. At the moment, we, we, we respect his potential more than we respect what he's done on the tennis court. But mm-hmm. off the court, he's been really, really a good guy. That's exactly, we respect his potential. And does he need a coach, real quick? Absolutely, everybody does. Everybody needs a yeah. coach. If you want to get the most out of your game, you need a coach. All right. Or three. <laughs> Unfortunately for Nick Kyrgios, his 2021 Australian Open came to an end on Thursday night as he lost to Dominic Team, last year's finalist, in the third round. We'll see what's next for Kyrgios, but we know it'll be exciting, and I can't wait to watch. We finish up this week's episode with a chat with our good buddy and colleague, former world number four Jimmy Arias, also a reoccurring guest on the TC Live podcast. We just want to point that out, too. As the IMG Director of Player Development, Arias has plenty to say about a few Americans competing in Melbourne, as well as the continued dominance of Nadal and Djokovic in majors. And no appearance is complete without an entertaining story from the good old days. Here's Jimmy Arias on the TC Live podcast. Our next guest is training the next generation of tennis talent. None other than our friend, colleague, and the director of player development for IMG, Jimmy Arias. Great to see you, Jimmy. Great to be here. Great to see my tennis channel family once again. I'm missing us in Australia, unfortunately, but I like seeing us anyway. Uh, hopefully we get to see you in our brand new studios here in Santa Monica soon. I want to talk to you about Jesse Pagula, who you have worked extensively with, got a big upset yesterday against Victoria Azarenka. What stood out to you about her performance? Look, the one thing about Jesse Pagula that I love is that I gave her a story, a speech a long time ago. She was someone that just hit the ball big and couldn't really defend very well, didn't use her legs, didn't have a ton of energy in the footwork. In fact, Her father, the first time I ever worked out, I said, look, I want to hear your shoes squeak. And he yelled from the sideline, if you can make her shoes squeak, you'll be the first guy that ever did that. (laughs) Well, I told her the whole compete like a lion and a rat story that I talk about with some players, meaning I want you to have the weapons of a lion, but the mentality of a rat when you're in trouble in a point, find a way to survive, find a way to get out of it. And Jesse Pagula sort of has really done that over the last couple of years. And in fact, she's called me after a couple of matches that she's won and said, I was a great rat today. Um, So she's embraced that and she's finding ways to win matches. It hasn't really happened to her so much in the big tournaments and the slams. She did make third round of the U.S. Open, but she's been a little tight in those bigger tournaments. That was a huge win for her. Hopefully she can just keep it going. Apart from wanting to make his daughter's shoes squeak, I'm sure most of our viewers know that Jesse Bagula's parents, Terry Kim, own the Buffalo Bills. I want to know, Jimmy, you were just down the road from the Super Bowl. Did you get to the big game? Now, the amazing thing is somehow my daughter got to the game, and I babysit sat her two kids. And in fact, during the first quarter of the Super Bowl, I was watching Coco Melon 
feeding a bottle to a 10-week-old. And you probably don't know what Coco Melon is, but it's a little kid show. Okay. So I don't know how exactly that happened. And I also know that had, Pagul, had the Bills won, I had a really good chance of getting to the Super Bowl. And my daughter would have been home with her grandkids. Next year. Uh, <laughs> serious, serious question, though. We, we've heard from some players about how they're motivated but by finances and how this is a big economic opportunity. I'm guessing that's not one of the motivations when your parents own NFL teams. But tell us about Jessie Pagula. I mean, she's been grinding it out. This was really one of the bigger wins of her career. What motivates her? Tell us a little bit more about her. You know what? I, it's shocking that she is the daughter of a, a billionaire, to be honest, from, from if you got to know her. She, she does not have the, what you would expect. She, she has the drive. She wants to be a great player. She's working very hard. She doesn't seem to be spoiled in any way. So, um, you know, my hat's off to her on that side of things as well, because that's not easy to do, to, to balance that, knowing that I don't need the money type of thing, but I still want to become great in something. And to me, when achieving something is what makes you feel happy in life, is, is, and it has to be something that's difficult. And she's trying to achieve something that's difficult, and she's doing it. She's on her way. And earn it on your own, which is always more meaningful than something being given to you. Uh, Jimmy, I want to talk to you about the men's side. Dominic Team obviously broke through with the U.S. Open. Finally, somebody outside the big three getting a major. Are we going to see more of that here in Australia for the rest of the year? Or is it going to go back to the usual Novak, Rafa, Roger? I mean, probably Novak, Rafa, Roger. I mean, it's hard to bet against them. Having said that, Team does, I mean, he hits the ball so big from pretty far behind the baseline. And now that he's won a major, I think he'll believe that he can do it again. There'll still be that niggling doubt, however, in the back of his mind that he didn't really do it beating any of those guys that we're talking about. I'm not sure from what I've heard, you guys can correct me. The courts are pretty quick in Melbourne this year. They were quick at the U.S. Open as well, but I just don't think that favors his game for the most part. You talk to a lot of former players about this strange month in tennis, and I know some of them, you try to put yourself in that position. What would I have been like? How would I have survived 14 days of hard quarantine? I want to ask you specifically about something that Jesse actually talked about after her win over Azarenka, which is energy. How does a player generate energy when there aren't you know, full stands, when there isn't your conventional tournament? Where does energy come from if, if you were playing today in that circumstance? I mean, you know what? That's an interesting question because a lot of it for me, I did derive my energy and sort of I took pressure off with crowds. I know you would think the opposite. A lot of people are watching. You'll be nervous. But I actually use the crowd for both things. If I was nervous, I'd make a joke to the crowd and sort of get out of my own head slightly. So I'm a guy that it would have needed the crowds. It, it would have felt strange. But at the same time, when you're playing a match and when you're completely involved in the match you don't see the crowd in some ways and it is just you against the opponent and I think that's what these players are so good at doing now they're not they're not paying attention to the crowd at any time they're just playing the match against the person in front of them it's the one thing I love about tennis more than anything else is it it's an emotional game you no one wants to admit that guy is a better man than me or better woman than me and so it's emotional and you've got to be able to keep your head and think while your emotions are flowing, it helps you in every part of your life for the rest of your life. So, you know, I love tennis because of it. Jimmy, speaking of a, an emotional match, a big match today, two Americans, best friends, Riley Opelka, Taylor Fritz. Riley Opelka was the, the best man in, in Taylor's wedding. How do you approach a matchup when you're taking on somebody you're such good friends with? 
I mean, that's one where it's hard to answer because it depends on what type of competitor you are. I remember one time I was friendly with Brad Gilbert and he was serving very well that day. And so on the changeover, I just said, hey, Brad, congratulations. You never miss a first serve anymore. That wasn't because we were friends. I was kind of trying to get into his head a little bit. Unfortunately, I forgot that Brad actually just believed me and said, yeah, thank you. I am serving very well. And uh, and it didn't break down. Um so, I mean, I don't know how Opelka and Fritz, the way they're going to walk into this. The one thing about Opelka to me is, I, as I've said for the last couple of years, he's a guy to me that will be top 10 in the world at some point. He's got that type of weaponry with the serve. He moves very well. His backhand is solid as could be. For a seven-footer, he moves very well. And, you know, Fritz is the guy that's grinding away and continues to improve. So this is a difficult second-round match for both of them. Learned so much from Jimmy Area. I mean, rats, lions, cool melon, the, the kids shows. Uh, Jimmy, great to have you here on TC Live and look forward to seeing you in our new studios here in Santa Monica. Stay safe, my friend. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me, guys. That's it for this week's edition of the TC Live podcast. Remember, you can find every episode of the show and many other great podcasts on the Tennis Podcast Network by just going to tennis.com slash podcasts. TC Live continues each day for the Australian Open at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, and the action will not fail to disappoint. I'm Mitch Michaels, and this was the TC Live Podcast. We'll see you next week, and enjoy the tennis night owls.